Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Hilda Hume was on the phone when her husband brought the girls home from Victoria Park. Juliet Hume and Pauline Reaper were still and silent. Their faces pale and haunted, like soldiers just back from war. There was a large smear of blood on the front of Juliet's brand new skirt. The sleeve of Pauline's coat was positively drenched in the stuff. Henry told Hilda there'd been an accident. He was almost the same shade of white as the girls, looking everywhere but in her eyes as he recounted what he knew. According to the ambulance driver, Pauline's mother had fallen on some rocks in the park. She was hurt very badly, possibly dead. The girls had tried to help her, which was how they got so bloody. Hilda knew her husband barely believed what he was saying. She was struggling to believe it herself. The scene before her didn't look like the result of an accident. There was too much blood, but the alternative was unimaginable. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed how Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker bonded over similarly tumultuous childhoods. The girls quickly developed an intense friendship, spending all their time together in a fantasy world and planning their future together. When their parents threatened to separate them, the girls agreed to do whatever they had to to stay together. This week, we'll talk about the gruesome crime born of their desperation and the shockwaves it sent through the tiny island nation of New Zealand. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries.
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. 15-year-old Juliet Hume and 16-year-old Pauline Parker known at the time as Pauline Reaper, had developed an intense and intimate bond. They had the rest of their lives mapped out together, but their dreams of running away to America and becoming famous writers were shattered when the girls learned that the Humes would be leaving New Zealand without Pauline. The girls begged the Humes to reconsider their plans. Not wanting to be responsible for the girls' unhappiness, they left the decision to Pauline's mother, Honora, and she wouldn't be moved. Pauline was staying here. So by mid-June, the girls were desperate for a solution. They decided the only way for them to stay together was to kill Honora Reaper. The afternoon of June 22, 1954, went as smoothly as the girls had hoped. After lunch, Honora, Pauline, and Juliet took a bus to the base of Victoria Park Road. It was a 20-minute walk uphill before they even reached the trails. Honora insisted on stopping for tea before they continued into the park. There was a kiosk run by the caretaker's wife. Since it was a special occasion, a farewell to Juliet, Honora ordered cakes and scones with the tea. But by this time, the girls' good moods were fading. They were tired and anxious to see their plan through. When the tea was gone, Pauline took the lead picking a trail for them to hike. Honora followed after her daughter and Juliet brought up the rear. Juliet was getting nervous. She wasn't sure she could really go through with the killing. But even as she second-guessed herself, she knew she would. If Mrs. Reaper didn't die today, then Pauline was sure to kill herself when Juliet left. If Juliet was going to be responsible for someone's death, she would rather it be Honora's. Pauline had only ever complained about what a terrible mother she was. She was standing in the way of their dreams. She was selfish and horrible, always threatening and punishing poor Pauline. It needed to be done. Up ahead... Pauline kept looking over her shoulder as if to make sure Juliet was still there. After about 30 minutes of walking, Honora jabbering on about nature the entire time, they decided it was time to turn back. Now Pauline was behind her mother as they trudged back up the hill. As planned, Juliet had dropped a small pink gem on the trail. The sparkle caught Honora's eye and she stopped to pick it up. Pauline seized the moment pulling the brick out of her bag. The first blow only stunned her mother. Honora knelt in the dirt, unable to process what was happening. The girls had thought they could make it look like an accident. In the movies, people were knocked over the head once and it was done. The plan was to say she'd hit her head on a rock, but now they realized how much effort it would really take to bludgeon a person to death. 
Pauline brought the brick down again and again. Eventually, it broke free of the stocking she'd wrapped it in. Juliet held Honora to the ground by the throat to keep her from running. By the time the woman was still, both girls were covered in blood and other body matter. Juliet and Pauline ran back to the tea kiosk calling for help. The caretaker's wife, Agnes Ritchie, sent the two young customers she had been helping to get her husband. Juliet and Pauline were pale, shaken. All the girls would tell her was that there had been an accident. When Agnes asked them to show her where, they refused to go back down the trail. They were too traumatized. When Kenneth Ritchie arrived, he immediately doubted the girl's story. There was too much blood for an accident, and it was all over them. He and his assistant hurried through the path to try to find Honora and help her. In the tea kiosk, Juliet was pacing frantic. She was desperate to clean the gore off her hands and clothes. Agnes gave the girls towels and showed them a sink they could wash in. Before leaving to call a doctor, Agnes heard both girls giggling as Juliet remarked to Pauline, isn't she nice? Once they had cleaned up, Juliet became slightly calmer. That was until Agnes tried to ask questions about what exactly had happened. Don't talk about it, Juliet cried. I can't bear to talk about it. It's only a dream. Maybe it was her proper English accent, but Agnes couldn't help but find the girl a bit theatrical. Pauline, on the other hand, remained stoic as she had been the entire time. She said simply that her mother had slipped on a plank. Her head kept bumping and banging as it fell. The girl seemed dazed. Her dreamlike stare didn't seem to be actually taking in the world around her. Before I continue, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Most people know about the body's acute stress response, commonly known as fight or flight. When a person has a traumatic experience, the body releases epinephrine and cortisol to energize the body to either respond to or retreat from the threat. This would be why Juliet seemed frantic. Her bloodstream was full of adrenaline and glucose, rendering her physically unable to relax. Pauline, on the other hand, seemed to take the lesser known option, freeze, also known as dissociation. According to Dr. Leon F. Seltzer, being physically, mentally, and emotionally immobilized permits you not to feel the harrowing enormity of what's happening to you, which in your hyperaroused state might threaten your very sanity. Pauline's mind likely disconnected from reality in an effort to preserve itself. The longer they stayed in the tea kiosk, Juliet became desperate to go home. She asked Agnes to please call their father so they could leave this horrible place. The phone at the fish shop where Bert Reaper worked was busy, but Agnes was able to get a hold of Henry Hume at the university. While the girls were with Agnes, Kenneth Ritchie finally found Honora's body nearly a quarter mile down the hill. He didn't have to look too closely to confirm that she was dead. A few planks on the path formed a dilapidated bridge over a wet patch but there were no rocks nearby. 
nothing that Honora would have hit her head on. But Richie did find half a brick covered in blood and bits of hair. When he returned to the kiosk, Richie tried to question the girls, but they refused to talk to him. An ambulance had pulled up by then, but the caretaker informed the medics the woman was definitely dead. They didn't need a doctor. They needed the police. To Juliet's relief, her father arrived before the officers. Henry Hume hurried the girls into his car. They slid down in the back seat as if to hide. Henry left his name and address with one of the ambulance drivers and took the girls home to Islam. When Henry and the girls arrived, all three were too stunned to think of what to do. That fell to Hilda, who called for her boyfriend, Bill Perry. Though she was a shrewd woman, she felt safer with Perry taking the lead. He would know what to do. Perry told Henry to phone the friends Juliet was supposed to go out with that evening. All he had to say was there'd been an accident and Juliet couldn't come. Then, he showed Hilda how to treat shock. While Hilda got started, taking the girls upstairs for a hot bath, Perry took their coats to the dry cleaners. The girls were given tea and supper in Juliet's room. Juliet had reanimated after the bath. She was restless and talkative, though neither she nor Pauline would say anything about what had happened to Honora. To help them both get some rest, Perry gave them each a sedative. All that was left to do was wait. Henry, Hilda, and Perry gathered in the drawing room. Maybe they were all overreacting. The girls were known to be dramatic. There was still a chance that Honora was simply hurt and it scared them. Yes, there'd been a lot of blood, but that was the nature of head wounds. The police would surely be calling to say it was a misunderstanding. The alternative was unimaginable. Unfortunately, when the police finally called, they delivered bad news. Honora Reaper was dead, and they would be coming to speak to the girls that night. Coming up, the investigation into the brutal killing divides Juliet and Pauline's loyalty. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In June of 1954, 15-year-old Juliet Hume and 16-year-old Pauline Reaper were the sole suspects in the grisly murder of Pauline's mother, Honora. On the night of the killing, detectives went to the Hume's home to interview both girls. Bill Perry wanted to speak to the girls first to prepare them to talk to the police. Hilda stayed with Juliet in her room while Perry took Pauline to a guest room. Pauline stuck to the story that her mother slipped, fell, and hit her head. No, the trail wasn't terribly steep, but it was slippery. Mother had fallen and hit her head over and over on a brick. No, half of a brick that happened to be on the path. Perry tried to probe further, the way the police might. Had there been an argument, 
maybe a struggle before she fell. Pauline was adamant. It was a random and tragic accident, and she wouldn't say anything further. The Humes asked Perry to stay and help them with the police. When Senior Detective McDonald Brown and Detective Sergeant Archie Tate arrived, they recognized that Perry seemed to be the one taking charge, so Detective Brown took him aside to tell him what they knew. They were sure, based on the number and severity of her injuries, that Honora Reaper did not die in an accident. Her face was bludgeoned beyond recognition, and there were marks around her neck indicating she'd been held down. The trauma to her hands was just as extreme as those to her head. The tip of her left pinky had been almost completely smashed off. Such defensive wounds were not usually found on a fall victim. Even the seasoned investigators at the crime scene were deeply disturbed by the violence of the crime. Tate said, The deceased had been attacked with an animal ferocity seldom seen in the most brutal murders. They could hardly believe their only suspects were two teenage girls. Detectives Brown and Tate decided to question Pauline first. Hilda stayed in the room to hear what the girl had to say. Pauline told the story of the accident once more. Her mother slipped and hit her head repeatedly. She mentioned the half-brick again and told the detectives how she and Juliet had tried to restrain Honora as she seemingly convulsed on the ground. Juliet was brought to the drawing room to be questioned next. Her story matched Pauline's almost exactly. Detective Brown asked if she was absolutely sure that that was how it happened. They had reason to believe she might not have actually been present at the exact moment of the tragedy. Henry Hume had told the detectives as much when they'd arrived. Perry acted quickly asking the officials and Humes to give him a moment with Juliet. He told her the police didn't believe Pauline's story about an accident. They suspected murder. Juliet was a smart girl, but it wasn't until that moment that she seemed to finally understand the situation she was in, and she didn't want to go to jail. When her parents returned with the detectives, she told them that she had actually been walking a few feet ahead of Honora and Pauline. She turned back when she heard a scream and saw Mrs. Reaper lying on the ground bleeding. Juliet said she pretended to have been there when Honora fell, so Pauline wouldn't be in trouble alone. Brown and Hilda went back to Pauline's room to confront her with Juliet's version of events. The detective told Pauline in no uncertain terms that she was suspected of murdering her mother. Because of this, she wasn't required to say anything that might incriminate her further. Pauline grappled with Juliet's new version of the story. The plan was to stick together, no matter what. But then she looked at Mrs. Hume, who had once called her a second daughter. The woman seemed to be pleading with her eyes, urging her to spare Juliet. Pauline thought then about Dr. Hume and how much he was already facing with the impending move and divorce. She thought of everything they'd done for her, taking her away from her fraught home life. The Humes had accepted her into their world and into their family. In that moment, 
She wanted to prove herself a true member of the family by protecting them all. No longer needing to pretend she was shocked and grieving, Pauline agreed to be questioned again. Yes, she had hit her mother with a brick that she'd been carrying in her shoulder bag. She declined to answer why. When Detective Brown asked how many times Pauline had struck her mother, the girl shrugged. I don't know, a great many times I should imagine. Pauline corroborated Juliet's new version of events, stating that she had waited until her friend was out of sight before making her move. Juliet knew nothing of Pauline's plan that day. As the police led Pauline away in handcuffs, Hilda worked hard to hide her relief. Juliet, on the other hand, dissolved into a fit of nervous energy. Unable to be calmed, she spent the rest of the night reciting every poem she knew. She chanted continuously as if reciting incantations against the guilt of turning on her only friend. While Pauline's charges were being processed, Detective Brown met with Bert Reaper in one of the interview rooms. During their conversation, another shocking truth came to light. Though they had been living together as man and wife for many years, Bert and Honora had never legally married. In the official record, Honora's name was changed from Reaper to her maiden name, Parker. Pauline would also be known as Parker from this moment. Later in the evening, Detective Tate found Pauline writing on a scrap piece of paper. She was making her daily diary entry. When Tate took the paper from her to see what she'd written, he learned two more important facts for the investigation. Pauline had written that the moiter had been successful, but that things hadn't gone entirely to plan. She was thrilled with how sympathetic the Humes had been and even wrote that she'd been having a pleasant time with the police. She lamented not being able to talk to Juliet, but that she was taking the blame for everything. When Tate read this, he realized the Humes had lied to him. Juliet was obviously more involved than they wanted police to know. He asked Bert Reaper if Pauline kept a regular diary. Yes, she did. He went home and got it for them that night. In the diary, the plans for murder were laid bare. The girls had been talking about it for a month or more. In the entry for June 21st, 1954, Pauline had written that Juliet helped her come up with the idea to use some sort of frock in a stocking. Pauline spent her first night in jail alone in one of the two cells set aside for female inmates. The next morning, she was taken before the magistrate and formally charged. That same morning, Bert Reaper was taken to the morgue to identify his wife's body. It was the first time he'd seen the state the girls had left her in. He couldn't make himself go down the track at the park the day before. The body had been cleaned for examination purposes, which only served to highlight the devastation. Her facial features were unrecognizable under the bruises and bone-deep lacerations. The jaw hung at an unnatural angle, clearly broken. Despite all that, somehow Bert was still sure it was his love that lay on the cold slab. While all of this was happening, detectives Brown and Tate made their way back to Islem to question Juliet once again. Henry and Perry were home, 
but Hilda had gone to a previously scheduled hair appointment. Though her daughter had narrowly escaped arrest, she was still sure she and her family would be subject to a lot of attention. She was not going to be caught looking less than her best. The men found Juliet in her room. She maintained her composure despite the unexpected interruption. Brown told her that Pauline had given them reason to believe that Juliet hadn't told them the truth the day before. She was still an official suspect. All Juliet wanted to know was what Pauline had told them. The only thing Brown would tell her was that Pauline wanted to speak to Juliet, that she was sure Juliet would agree with whatever Pauline said. Perry and Henry told Juliet to wait until Hilda returned before saying anything more. That didn't end up mattering much. Shortly after Hilda came home, Juliet decided she would talk to the detectives again. She spent the night feeling terrible that she was free while Pauline bore all the punishment. This time, she would tell the real truth. Juliet told Brown and Tate about her family's impending move and how she was being sent to South Africa very soon. She and Pauline were determined to stay together, but they knew Mrs. Reaper would never allow it. They went to Victoria Park, she said, to quote, discuss the matter and have it out. Juliet had brought the brick from Ilum and gave it to Pauline, who'd wrapped it in the stocking and carried it in her bag. In her new official statement, she said, after the first blow was struck, I knew it would be necessary for us to kill her. Detectives asked to see Juliet's papers, which Hilda had helpfully collected in a suitcase the night before. Since she was as prolific a writer as Pauline, they assumed that she too would have a diary. Strangely, they never found one. Even still, Juliet was arrested for murder. Pauline and Juliet were reunited at Central Police Station that evening. As a matter of policy, murder suspects were placed on suicide watch and under constant supervision. The constables on watch that night felt more like babysitters at a sleepover than guards in jail. The girls chatted about any and everything, except for the situation they were in. They seemed entirely unbothered to be in a cell. The next morning, June 24th, 1954, Juliet Hume took her turn before the magistrate to be officially charged with the murder of Honora Mary Parker. Unlike Pauline's day in court, the public seats in the room were full of spectators. All of Christchurch, it seemed, had heard that the daughter of the head of the university was suspected of murder. The news rocked the small, pious city. Murder was rare in New Zealand, rarer still in Christchurch. They never would have guessed that such evil lurked in their town, let alone within the daughter of such a prominent family. Up next, the dark details of Juliet and Pauline's crime are made public during the trial, sending the small nation into a deep moral panic. Now, back to the story. The tiny conservative town of Christchurch had never weathered a scandal such as the murder of Honora Parker. The murder was violent and horrific, committed by two young women, 
Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker. A prominent family was involved. The victim turned out to have been living in sin, and the daughter who killed her was deemed illegitimate. The public was enthralled by the drama. Quickly, the case was crowned the murder of the century. News spread across the tiny island nation of New Zealand. Women were rarely criminals, let alone killers, evidenced by the small number of holding cells available. Teenage murderers seemed impossible, especially educated ones. Someone in the police department must have been leaking information to the public. Details about the girls' novels and diaries became public knowledge. Though set in fantasy worlds, Juliet and Pauline's writing was rife with violence and characters driven by vengeance. And Pauline's diary hinted at a highly inappropriate level of intimacy between the girls. The whole town was fearfully whispering about the two devilish lesbians who had been living among them for years. Henry and Hilda Hume, not particularly well-liked to begin with, were publicly shunned. At the post office, days after the arrest, Henry couldn't get anyone to speak to him. Despite the scandal, the Humes were still able to secure a respected lawyer for Juliet. For his part, Bert Reaper reached out to Honora's one-time employer, a local solicitor, who pointed him toward the appropriate counsel. The only option open to them was to pursue an insanity defense. The girls were not in a state of mind to understand that their actions were wrong. In New Zealand, if a person was found not guilty by reason of insanity, they were to be remanded to an institution for an indefinite period. For a murderer facing the death penalty, it might have been a much better alternative. But because the girls were minors, the death penalty wasn't an option. According to author Peter Graham in his book, Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century, if found guilty, Juliet and Pauline would be sentenced to imprisonment pending Her Majesty's pleasure, which basically meant they would only be held for as long as the authorities thought it was necessary. The girls seemed willing to risk a guilty verdict. The Humes, especially Hilda, pushed for the insanity plea. They would rather people thought Juliet was sick than think they had raised a monster. The lawyers had decided that the best chance for success would be for everyone to work together. They instructed the Humes to hire Dr. Reginald Medlicott, a renowned psychiatrist. Dr. Francis Bennett, who had examined Pauline previously when Honora had concerns about her weight, was also brought in. Both doctors were astounded by the girl's lack of remorse. In fact, both Juliet and Pauline openly celebrated the success of their plan. They were pleased and impressed with themselves for having been able to pull off the moiter. When Medlicott and Bennett asked if either girl regretted the killing, their answer was a resounding no. Each girl felt a little sorry that the Humes had been dragged into the mess, but even that was no matter. Juliet said, We have both been terribly happy since it happened, so it has all been a blessing in disguise. Not only were Juliet and Pauline not sorry, 
but they were as condescending and abusive to the doctors as they had been to their families. Medlicott suggested to Pauline that she and Juliet were probably going to end up separated anyway, either in jail or in an institution. She became so enraged that a guard had to come in and stop her from attacking the doctor with an inkwell. Her violent intentions thwarted, Pauline stared coldly at Medlicott and said, You're not worth it. Juliet made it abundantly clear that she didn't consider the doctor her intellectual equal. She scolded him for mumbling like she was his school teacher and he was an underperforming student. Medlicott found their arrogance, as he put it, quite out of normal proportions. Bennett agreed entirely. None of this, however, necessarily fit the legal definition of insanity. And unfortunately for Pauline and Juliet, attachment disorder was not yet a known diagnosis. With their history of childhood illness, both girls had spent critical periods of time separated from their parents. Children with attachment disorder often develop other behavioral and personality problems. According to psychologists Terry Levy and Michael Orleans, kids with attachment disorder also exhibit a lack of conscience, self-gratification at the expense of others, lack of responsibility, dishonesty, and a blatant disregard for the rules of family and society. At the time, the doctor's assessments were not enough to establish the presence of a known mental illness, but the interviews made it clear that neither girl could be allowed to take the stand. Their arrogance and self-absorption would turn the jury against them immediately. No one wanted to be the one to break that news to Juliet especially. She loved the attention and relished any chance to be in the spotlight. She had told her team over and over again that she was sure she'd be the most brilliant witness. And after seeing her behavior over the weeks it took to build their case, this group of highly respected professional men were all scared to disagree with her. On July 16th, Pauline and Juliet had their preliminary hearing in front of a packed courtroom. It was the first time the public would get any of the facts of the case. Unfortunately for the defense, the facts didn't do much to refute the many rumors. The girls' confessions to the police were read to the court, eliminating any doubt that they carried out the killing. According to the Manchester Guardian, the crowd gasped as brown red transcribed excerpts from Pauline's diary. Not only did it show how fervently Pauline wished her mother would die, but also how detailed her plans to make it happen had been. Just as fascinating as the evidence was the girl's behavior. Papers from London and Sydney took pains to describe how Juliet and Pauline spent the entire time giggling and passing notes, as if they were in a boring lecture rather than standing trial for murder. The actual trial started August 23, 1954. Hilda was there with Bill Perry, another scandalizing decision. Henry had already left for England with their son Jonathan as planned. He had been raked over the coals for abandoning his daughter, and Hilda was similarly disparaged for flaunting her lover at the trial. Bird Reaper only attended the trial when he was called to give evidence, which no one could blame him for. The tragedy of his situation was unimaginable. 
and one afternoon, he'd lost both the woman he'd known as his wife and a child. In his opening statement, Prosecutor Alan Brown said, The contention of the prosecution is that this plainly was a coldly, callously planned and premeditated murder committed by two highly intelligent but precocious and dirty-minded little girls. He had plenty of witness testimony and even the girls' own word to use against them. Pauline's diary ended up being a major building block for the prosecution, sealing the girls' fate almost as well as their signed statements. The next day, August 24th, Alan Brown rested his case and the defense began theirs. The case for insanity rested on the two doctors. They were called to the stand separately. First, Dr. Medlicott, and then Dr. Bennett. Both doctors testified that the girls were suffering from a major psychosis, known as paranoia and from shared delusions, also known as folia duh. The girls operated under the shared false belief that they were superior in every way to the average human, especially in terms of their intelligence and literary talent. Specifically, the doctors agreed that the girls were under Foley simultanee. It was a rare but recognized disorder in which their lawyer put it, the mental instability of one patient aggravates the mental instability of the other. In short, they made each other worse. To demonstrate the grandiosity of their delusions, Dr. Medlicott reported what the girls had told him about the fourth world. This shared delusion apparently formed the basis for the girls' private religion. According to Juliet, in their view, all people were not equal. Having access to the fourth world made them part of a privileged group who would actually go to paradise when they died. They told the doctor about the extra part of their brains that set them apart from the rest of humanity. Juliet had told him that she didn't consider herself and Pauline above the law, so much as apart from it. Dr. Bennett told the court how the girls created their own blissful society, consisting of the two of them, their favorite celebrities, and anyone else they admired. They could only exist in this state together, as Dr. Bennett put it on the stand, if separated, each has to revert back to her lone, unhappy conflict with her contemporary fellow beings. Because the delusion had been threatened, the doctor said, as is the nature of the paranoiac, they acted out to resist the threat. Both doctors concluded that the girls knew what they were doing was against the law, Juliet and Pauline also admitted that society at large would consider murder immoral. However, according to their own code of morality, they didn't believe they had done anything wrong. The prosecutor, Alan Brown, seized on the acknowledgement that the girls knew murder was wrong legally and socially. He also pointed out that it was very much reality, not a delusion, that Honora was an obstacle to their plans. The girls had admitted they saw killing her as removing an obstacle. Essentially, both doctors were forced to admit the murder was an indirect result of the delusion, which seemed to weaken the case. The prosecutor also asked both doctors about their conclusions on the nature of the girl's relationship. Medlicott testified that he considered the girls to be, quote, grossly homosexual, 
though he found no concrete evidence of a physical relationship between them. The court seemed confused about how a relationship might be deemed homosexual without being physical. During his turn on the stand, Dr. Bennett clarified by saying, in the psychiatric world, it can be applied to this morbid association, love if you like, between two people. The prosecution continued to question this by bringing up Pauline's sexual relationship with one of her family's male boarders. Brown challenged that she had a good deal of sexual knowledge of the other sex. Up to this point, the girls hadn't seemed to be paying much attention to the proceedings, but at the mention of the border, Juliet reportedly leaned over and whispered angrily to Pauline, who hung her head as low as she could. Not unlike a jealous lover, Juliet did not like what she was hearing. To refute the evidence brought by the defense's psychiatrists, the prosecution called the team from the Department of Mental Hygiene. The first was Dr. Stallworthy, who testified that insane girls wouldn't have taken pains to avoid getting caught. To him, this demonstrated that they knew what they were doing was wrong. Stallworthy also went so far as to say he didn't think they were delusional. He told the court, I see nothing insane in having a vivid imagination and a fondness for using it at every opportunity. Having heard from both sides, the girl's fate now rested with the jury. Before they left to deliberate on August 28, 1954, Justice Adams took his opportunity to clarify their job as he saw it. He told them the girls were to be tried together. Either both were guilty or not guilty by reason of insanity. He also stated that the law didn't make allowances for any degree of mental illness. Criminal responsibility could only be absolved if the person was truly unable to understand what they had done was wrong on any level. The jury deliberated for just over two hours before returning with their verdict guilty. Because Juliet and Pauline were both under 18, the death penalty was not an option. They were each sentenced to prison at Her Majesty's pleasure. The worst punishment for Pauline and Juliet would be separation. Because of this, Juliet was sent to Auckland Prison in Mount Eden, and Pauline went to Arahata Borstal and Reformatory. The girls each served five and a half years, released around their 21st birthdays. The executive council hadn't made a public announcement about their release, hoping to give them a chance at a fresh start. To help with this further, the girls were also given new identities. Pauline Parker became Hillary Nathan. Because she was a citizen of New Zealand, her release was conditional. She was on probation until at least 1965, by which time she was living and working in Auckland as a university librarian. When her parole ended, she migrated north. Eventually, she settled in the Orkney Islands near Scotland, living a nun-like existence. Juliet Hume was released unconditionally and left New Zealand as Anne Stewart. In England, she later changed her name to Anne Stewart Perry. Both girls lived in relative anonymity, aside from Anne's career as author of a best-selling series of murder mystery novels. Interestingly, both women settled in Scotland, a country even smaller than the island where they met. 
But Juliet has publicly said that she and Pauline never saw or spoke to each other again. This was widely believed to be a condition of their release, but the Secretary of Justice denied this. In 1994, 40 years after the crime, they were outed by journalists. There had been renewed interest in the case in the wake of Peter Jackson's film, Heavenly Creatures. As Anne Perry, Juliet couldn't understand the fuss. During a run of press appearances to do damage control, she told the New York Times, I really didn't think it would surface again so long afterward. And if it did, it would be, you know, so what? Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century by Peter Graham to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all other originals from Parcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. (laughs) 